Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. State Senator Darren Bailey attacking him right out of the gate, calling him a, quote, career Democrat. Irvin did pull a Democratic ballot in four of the last five elections, raising questions about his political allegiances. Gary Rabine also sarcastically welcoming... Oh, I'm so sorry. I was following the latest in the gubernatorial election. My goodness. Uh, Republicans. They're mad. I don't blame them. Since Kenny G, Kenny G didn't even say he was endorsing uh, Richard Irvin. You know what I'm saying? He didn't come out and say it. Somehow or other, he just like emits the vibrations that he's endorsing Richard Irvin. And everybody's running. The bright one put like Irvin's picture in their paper when they were covering Pritzker's speech. You know, his budget speech. So it's like, oh. Urban's response was this. Wait, what about big boy, Darren Bailey? What about his response? <laughs> what about Gary Rabine? Huh? I spent all these months learning how to say Rabine's name correctly. Merciless criticism from one Eric Zorn. Good God, I had to put up with a lot from him. Remember me? Oh, what is that? That was my phone. <laughs> and now they don't even quote him. See, Eric Zorn, I spent all that time learning how to pronounce the man's name. And now just like that. It's not relevant. All in, that matters is Richard Irvin. Go. Isn't that funny, though? Kenny G, like, uh, hasn't said he's endorsing Richard Irvin. Meanwhile, like, uh, Irvin's giving a press conference. Sir, uh, why is there $10,000 hanging out of your pocket? <laughs> Can I have some? Uh, <laughs> then, like, a big fancy commercial comes out. I know, man. Irvin's lighting up cigars with, uh, you know, $100 bills. Like, whoa, I've never seen a politician do that before. Well, you've never seen a politician who's gotten the blessing from the kingmaker, Kenny G. Illinois okay. is a state with a grand history of profound impact on our nation and our world. Good luck running against that guy. <laughs> I don't know. Let me just uh, do the basics for you. J.B. Pritzker, $3.5 billion. Kenny G, $22.5 billion. Let me do the math. I went to Evanston High School. Oh, let's see, 22, $19 billion more, D. It's a lot of commercials. JB's got to start wearing some Bob Marley shirts. Remind everybody, I legalized reefer. That is so true. You know what I mean? Apps. You know what? Damn. Wish I thought of that. They're right now, right now, they're trying to book Snoop Dogg to come and uh, <laughs> give like a rap for an intro to one of his. Uh... De- Dennis is on a roll. I have been on a fucking jelly roll. He had a line earlier today before the show in the pre-show prep planning. That I probably will steal in a little while. I still haven't debated whether I will just out and out steal it or give him credit for it. I've not made that decision yet because part of me wants everybody to think I'm really smart and that I think these things up on myself. And the other part goes, well, you gotta be honest, man, with Dennis's line. That that decision will be made at the moment. Oh, all right. There you go. That's a tease, guys. Get ready for that. Get ready for that. (laughs) It was Dennis's line. I'm like, God. Damn, why didn't I think of that? All right, let's get the show going. I'm sick of Today's it. Every been... damn. Oh, hey, Boast, come on. Today's come been on, Jer- Boast. <laughs> Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, February 3rd. That's like 10 years old, but it's still really good. 
Uh, never gets old. Your binge, post. Your Bingerowski show for Thursday, February 3rd is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. I'm sick of it! It is Thursday, February 3rd, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, we welcome back in these times writer Miles Camp Lassen. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this What Does Wonky Mean Thursday? And here's why. So yesterday, I forget what time it was, D. I think it was like uh, six in the afternoon. A little shout out to Michael Girardi. I get a text from Michael Girardi. I'm like taking a nap, D. I'm just going to let it all hang out. I was taking a nap. I was exhausted. I had to shovel all that snow. You don't have to shovel snow because you live in an apartment. So I'm shoveling snow. I'm walking through snow, and it's all wet. And someone's telling me, oh, Ben, this is, uh, lake, this is not lake effect snow. It's lighter snow. Yeah, whoever told me that. Whoever told me that was not shoveling it, okay? This was yeah. like a heavy shovel. Like, thanks. Do you have a shovel? Can you help? Okay, then get off. It's like a thick snow. You live next to Trent Ford. That's cool. I know, man. It's sort of like people in Arizona go, well, it's hot here, but it's dry heat. Well, no, I don't even know what that means. Anyway, that's not smart science. So uh, anyway, I was uh, taking a nap, exhausted from having shoveled all that snow and having walked through the snow to go to the dentist. And thank you, everybody. Yes, uh, everything was fine. With my dental appointment. Shout out to that dentist for staying open. <laughs> yeah, in the in the snow, <laughs> dude's nuts. The dentist was open, uh, open for business. And so I'm lying there half asleep, and in comes a text uh, from Michael Girardi, uh, the Neil Young of Chicago, uh, who promises to be at work on a song, D, that he's going to come back to the show to unveil. So he's working at it. He tells me, and it's a a, a connection, a link to the Sun Times story saying that Jesse Sharkey is stepping down as president of the Chicago Teachers Union. I'm like, well, as always, I am the last to know, okay? <laughs> I, know, I know I'm supposed to have my finger in the pulse of everything, but I'm always the last to know. Girardi knew it before I did, D, okay? So, uh, by the way, with Neil Young, uh, the Neil Young of Can no, excuse me, with Neil Young leaving Spotify, Spotify should make a deal with the Neil Young of Chicago and put Michael Girardi on there. Write that down. Anyway. So uh, Jesse Sharkey is stepping down as president of the Chicago Teachers Union. I want to first of all say congratulations, Jesse. says he wants to go back to the classroom uh, and that this is an exhausting job being the president of the Chicago Teachers Union. It's a very draining job. And, uh, you know, it's just time to move on and go back to his roots as a classroom teacher. And I met him back way back when. And oh gosh, it was a long time ago. D. Uh, he was a teacher at Sen High School. And I was doing a story about when they <laughs> stuck the Rickover. Oh, my goodness. You guys don't even want to know this. They stuck one school, the Admiral Rickover School into Sen High School. 
against the objections of absolutely everybody in sin. Typical uh, Chicago public school top-down ultimatum. This is long before Rom, ladies and gentlemen. Long before Lori Lightfoot. This is this is the way the Chicago public schools have always operated. So anyway, I got to know him, and he is. Uh, a uh, very dedicated guy. And so, Craig, congratulations, uh, Jesse, uh, and hope uh, for the best for you and everything and all that good stuff. And also, he's, got a, he's a good sport because we've been teasing him for a long time with that uh, clip that we play all the time. I'm trying to uh, get his press conference in over the, the horns of the trucks. You will never be forgotten on the Ben Jarofsky show, sir. I, um, <laughs> right now, um, <laughs> you'll always be on this show. He's kidding. He's got a good sense of humor, though. He wants to text him and he goes, that's pretty funny. So uh, a lot of love for Jesse Sharkey. Good. And I, um, I know you're going to enjoy things back in the classroom. All right. So but this is the thing, D. So I'm reading the, the Bright Ones coverage of it. And they go, this is in the headline. Sharkey to step aside. And then it says, wonky union president who, along with predecessor Karen Lewis, led education justice movement, says he won't run for reelection, plans to return to classroom. And I know, folks, sometimes I get distracted. I realize that sometimes I'm going down one path and I end up going down another path. I take tangents. I understand that. Having said all that, I was like, what do they mean by wonky? Like, what does wonky mean? Um, Wonky is a word that I've heard. I know, I mean, I've literally heard it. And I... I don't know if I use it. I have a general sense of what it means, but I would never like put it in a headline about somebody without knowing exactly what it means. You get what I'm saying? So clearly whoever wrote this headline and it's in the story too. So, uh, uh, Issa and Fran Spielman had some kind of sense of what wonky meant. So I looked it up. D. Yeah. I looked it up in the dictionary. Oh, okay. Okay. We're almost there. The internet, but I mean, we're almost there, podcast host in 2022. So, like, it means uneven. I didn't know that. I'm like, whoa. It's it's like, it's real means uneven, you know? Well, I did go to the internet. There are three uh, definitions, if you want. What do they say? Look at you on the internet, man. God dang, he's good. Go ahead. What, what did All you right, find? Three definitions. Uh, the first one, it says crooked, off-center, askew. Yeah. Uh, the other one is unsteady, shaky. And the other, not functioning correct, uh, not functioning correctly. Yeah. Or faulty. Yeah. I'm like, damn. You guys are really hating on Jesse Sharkey. Yeah, none of those meant awesome. Yeah. None of, them, right. none of those were positive. <laughs> I'm like, what did Jesse Sharkey ever do to you, bright one, that you're calling him? What? Read them again, D. This is what they're calling him. Uh, all three. Okay, here we go. Uh, once again, crooked, off-center, askew, unsteady, shaky, not functioning correctly, faulty. I, I, I don't know what he ever did to you guys. And I just want to say something. I love the Chicago Sometimes. I've been describing the Chicago Sometimes forever. And one of the highlights of my adult life was that year or so that we spent in our, um, in our beloved little studio at the bright one. So let me just say that, but I just want to remind the bright one, you know, the labor unions bailed you guys out before you cut your deal with BEZ. It was the labor unions that bailed you out. I'm just saying that. So show a little love for the labor unions every now in this town. I'm just, 
Come on, sometimes. So I'm like, what do they mean by wonky? I've been really thinking about this, Dan. I've been asking other people, calling people up, you know, uh, just, just friends of mine. And people go, well, that means wonky is like nerd. So they're saying he's a nerd. And I'm like, hmm, I've basically got the following definitions. So wonky, the best thing you could say, he's smart. But smart in kind of a bookish way. You know what I'm saying, D? It's like he spends all his time reading books, so he's not practical. So I don't think anybody in the city of Chicago wants to be called wonky. In fact, I'm going to tell it to you straight, Chicago. You don't want to be known as smart, as in book smart. No one in the city of Chicago in a public position wants to be known as book smart. If you're going to be smart, you got to be smart like Ed Burke Cunning smart. Hmm, one step ahead of everyone until the feds catch up with you, smart. That's the only smart you respect in the city of Chicago. Cunning, crafty, cagey, that kind of smart. If anybody's like learned smart, you know, like takes a, a, a long view of something. Oh, he's wonky. He's a nerd. Oh, God, he's boring. <laughs> you know, I noticed, D, I've spent my lifetime trying to explain to Chicagoans how municipal financing works. And this is their response. <laughs> Yeah, you try to tell something Chicago it's about it, how their tax dollars are being spent. Oh, that's so boring. Yeah, you mean this teacher guy's kind of nerdy. Hmm. If he was like running GQ or something, then there'd be an issue, right? <laughs> so that 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 was one definition, and then the other one said, "What well, I can't read my own writing." Oh, impractical. But what they're saying, Ben, is that he spends his whole life with books, so he's not practical. You know, he's not practical. <laughs> And then somebody else told me this. And here's at that point where I have to decide, am I going to give this person credit for having said this to me? And let's see, here's that moment of decision. Do I give this person oh, credit for saying this? <laughs> and I've decided, uh, our guest, by the way, is Malakhan Blafton has joined us. I'm going to bring him on as I come to this great climactic moment in my introduction. And I've decided that, yes, I must give this person credit for saying this because I cannot in good conscience steal this. This is <laughs> sure, sure. an impromptu line. And a certain person whose first name begins with a D, whose nickname is Dr. D, and who, as Miles will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him D Marvelous. He said to me, well, you know, Ben, Wonky sounds a lot like honky. Oh, gosh. And I'm like, Get oh, in. my God. This was the Sun-Times way of saying that he's the white guy. Okay. <laughs> no, it's <I> not. <laughs> Just joking. Man, they, they got such a low estimation of you Chicagoans. They know. Most Chicagoans know this about the teachers union. There's a black lady and a white guy. They're not quite sure who's who <laughs> at any given time. Because Chicagoans, you're busy, man. They got Dennis, Chicagoans are very busy. They don't have time to study things. So they know there's a white guy and a black and a black woman. So when they call him wonky, they're like, oh, white guy. That's who it is. To distinguish from Stacey Davis Gates, a good friend of the Ben Jarovsky show. So that's a possibility. When they call him wonky. None of this is good, by the way, Jesse. I hate to say it. <laughs> well, they mean the white guy as opposed to the black lady. 
Come on, man. We got to have more love for the. I think I'll be the last guy on the city of Chicago giving love to unions. But I will do. I'll be go down with it because I know when I got fired, unions came to my defense. So maybe that's why I'm so loyal to unions. Plus, my mother would like come back to earth and smack me in the head. She was a lifelong member of teachers union and very dedicated Chicago teacher union member. Anyway, congratulations, uh, Jesse Sharkey. I wish for the best for you as you go back. I don't know. Are you going back to Sen High School and um, teach history? Uh, and uh, onward we go. All right, Miles Conflassen is with me, the pride and joy of Whitney Young High School and uh, editor, writer for In These Times. Miles, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, so I've been spending quite a bit of time talking about uh, the Sun-Times headline in which they call Jesse Sharkey wonky. Uh, I'm throwing this as a curveball to you. I've been really thinking about this all day, thinking about Jesse's legacy, the Chicago Teachers Union, how they relate uh, to politics in the city of Chicago, all these important issues, how they relate to union politics throughout the country, what they have symbolized, what they come to mean. But I'm just curious, and you're, before we get into all that, all the meaty, really important, substantive stuff, in your mind, when somebody is called wonky, which is the headline, Miles, the headline, they call him the wonky president. What do they mean by wonky, in your humble opinion? Uh, to me, that term just evokes uh, like technocratic elite uh, something that's more academic and out of touch with uh, the mainstream. And in that way, it's often meant as um, either a disparaging term, you know, to uh, reflect somebody who is out of touch, or it's a term that's embraced by certain parts of, you know, the media uh, ecosystem who want to present themselves as experts. Um that said, I mean, to use that term to refer to somebody who's the head of a uh, union made up of working class teachers is um, not to take anything away from Jesse's intelligence and expertise, but uh, wonky, I think, is a, a lacking term to encapsulate what uh, Jesse Sharkey has brought to the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh well, let's get into that. First of all, I, I agree with you. Uh, that was a good definition. Uh, and they're sending a message out uh, about uh, Jesse Sharkey that's very mainstream Chicago. Uh, but get into it. What do you think? Why don't you uh, go a little uh, into more detail? What do you think Jesse Sharkey's contribution is uh, to unions, politics, education, and so forth? Well, just look at where um, the Chicago Teachers Union is now compared to where it was um, when CORE, the you know caucus that he uh, helped to start up alongside Karen Lewis, came to power. I mean, the uh, if you read his farewell note, you'll see all, a, a bunch of uh, really incredible achievements that um, that they've been able to make. It might not seem like that because, you know, this is still a dire moment for public education nationally and certainly in the city. I mean, there's a mayor who's shown herself to be pretty combative with, uh, with the teachers union, even when they're fighting for basic safety protections in the classroom. 
but th- there's a moratorium on school closings. I mean, you remember, Ben, that was a huge fight, you know, um, that many said the CTU initially lost when the uh, city decided to close down uh, about 50 public schools. Um, and, you know, that had been in a long line that had gone on under, under Daly, under ROM. Um, Renaissance 2010 was this whole program to um, uh, uh, basically remake public education in the city by bringing in charter schools to effectively replace public schools. Um, now there's a moratorium on school closings. We just passed, uh, the, the Illinois legislature just passed a bill restoring bargaining rights for teachers. So, you know, it used to be, they could only bargain over economic matters, which was a huge, uh, issue when the union was trying to fight for better resources in the classroom beyond just pay, you know, and it was used as a cudgel by opponents of the teachers union to say teachers are just greedy. They're just looking out for themselves. Well, now with this new legislation, that's changed. Uh, but really, I think the uh, the big legacy that isn't talked about in that um, in that letter, or hasn't and hasn't really been covered much in any of the news reports I've read, is the organizing of charter schools in the city. I think that's really transformational in a way that Chicago is leading the way in terms of um, labor uh, organizing in education. I mean, this was a huge, you remember Michelle Ree and Eva Moskowitz and these reformers and how they were all celebrated, you know, waiting for Superman, this whole, we're going to, you know, change public education by privatizing it, by handing it off to the market, basically by eviscerating unions um, and organized labor and instead replacing it with a profit motive and saying that that'll sort out everything. Um, and that was used as a way to divide uh, parents and teachers against one another and, you know, create this divide between private and public schools. Well, now through the CTU's landmark efforts of organizing these charter schools and charter networks, that divide has collapsed essentially because now they're on the same side, you know, the teachers at the charters and in the public schools. And in fact, they've gone on strike together here in Chicago under uh, Jesse Sharkey, Sharkey's leadership of the CTU. So, I mean, that's pretty incredible. It might seem like small beans, but that's really, you know, a, how you change a dynamic. And you're starting to see efforts to do that in uh, many other major cities as well. Um, and I think that, you know, when the history books are written, that will really go down as one of the great achievements of uh, the CTU under Jesse's leadership, but also, I mean, it's just bringing a militant labor union back to the fore. I mean, it's not like this CTU was alone anymore. They were kind of a voice in the wilderness back when Karen Lewis was talking about, you know, fighting the privatizers and, you know, they were reading uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and bringing this kind of critique of neoliberalism into the public conversation. We'll look at UTLA, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, look at like the Moore caucus in New York. This is spreading uh, across the country and you saw it in the teacher strikes in 2018. Uh, Chicago really led the way and, uh, and Jesse Sharkey has been part of that. Of course, Karen, was the uh, spark that, that, that lit it all. But uh, Jesse served as her vice president and it since has really, I think, kept that uh, torch of flame. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, you give me a lot of uh, that riff, uh, give me a lot of thought here. And going back to Wonky, uh, we'll get to, I'll get to the charter schools in a little bit, but uh, going back to Wonky, uh, 
I, I think uh, when you, you hit on a, uh, something very important. Uh, and I got to give the bright one. The headline was uh, really bizarre, but in their story, they talked about it. So I got to give them credit for that. Uh, but the Chicago Teachers Union under Karen Lewis uh, with Jesse Sharkey as her vice president uh, has broadened what the Chicago Teachers Union generally focused on. Generally, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, would focus on bread and butter issues, uh, salary, pensions, and uh, like money. And, and they didn't get into curriculum debates. They didn't get uh, into uh, testing issues, uh, any kind of educational decisions. They left to the powers that be, the endlessly shifting powers that be. Uh, and they're, they were contemptuous for a long time of uh, people who are, are t- teachers who articulated the need for teacher empowerment, for teachers to have a say uh, in uh, curriculum. And I remember there was a woman named Deborah Lynch just long before your time. Actually, you may have been at Whitney Young when she was the president of the union, now that I think about it. And she would talk about uh, teachers designing curriculum uh, and uh, teachers having a say uh, in what is actually taught in the classroom. And, and her opponents in the union mocked her. And they said, they called her professor. And they said, you got to go back to the education, be a education professor. We're in the real world and the real world is money. And, um, and so, uh, I think, you know, now the, the current, uh, uh, head of the, I mean, the, the current, the leading faction of the teachers union is being challenged by members first. Uh, and this is going to, this is like the age old fight miles. This is like, I'm like, Oh my God, I've gone back in time in a time capsule. and It's 1990s. And it's like criticizing Deborah Lynch. You know what I'm saying? They're like saying stick to, uh, uh, teachers issues that affect our members. Don't talk about larger issues outside the classroom. Don't talk about crime. Don't just deal with, uh, the issues right in front of you, uh, bread and butter pocketbook issues. And that's like an old fashioned Chicago teachers union attitude. It'd be every interesting election. Uh, if, uh, the core Stacey Davis Gates and her allies are defeated, then the teachers will have said, we want to go back to the old days of, you know, money in your pocket issues. Uh, so I think uh, I also think that's what they're getting at when they put walking in there, if you follow what I'm saying, uh, Miles. But I also think this is a defining moment, not just for the Chicago Teachers Union, but this election will send a message, I think, across the country in terms of where teachers unions uh, should be heading in the future. Your thoughts? The other great uh, legacy, I think, of CTU and its current formation with the core caucus leading the way is turning the union into a political vehicle, you know, to uh, represent working class politics in the city. And that's something that uh, you can just see looking at the makeup of city council. You know, if you remember back in 2012, before the historic strike, I remember at the auditorium theater, there were four aldermen sitting with the teachers then, you know, now it's, uh, you know, the aldermen are, there's basically a majority of aldermen that are, that are CTU, uh, aligned in some way, um, out of 50 on the council. And there's, you know, democratic socialist caucus, uh, in the city council, all of which were, um, aligned with the CTU. And that's, um, you know, people might disparage that and say, oh, you shouldn't get involved in politics. 
But look how that's changed the dynamic. There's actually people, you know, there's a political base with representation in city government who are fighting to protect uh, public education. And I think that that is part of what has helped to turn the tide. And that's part of what is, you know, made CORE a more sustainable um operation as a, you know, as a political leadership in the, in the union, because there's across the city, you know, there's uh, elected representatives who are, who believe that, you know, as the CTU has said, the, um, we need to get the schools that Chicago children deserve, you know, and they built this whole research arm to put out reports and focus on social policy and give a more holistic uh, set of recommendations beyond the economic stuff you just mentioned, you know, about teacher pay and pensions um, to deal with things like crime and um, jobs, employment, um, and, uh, and just, you know, social programs in the city, how there's much more to building an effective public education system in, um, in a major metropolitan city than paying teachers. You know, it has to do with, uh, creating an environment in which students are able to learn, you know, and are, and want to stay in the city, you know, and feel uh, comfortable and safe. So, I mean, I think that that has been shown in, all the elections since core came to power to be an effective message you're right i think this will be a defining election um most likely with stacy davis gates as the as the head although we'll see um of what of what happens but uh, so far i think they've proven themselves pretty successful at expanding the idea of what uh the union should be not just in terms of getting people to run for mayor i mean that's what people i think associate the ctu with as having you know back chewy garcia um as you know having back tony preckwinkle and then potentially challenging Lori lightfoot it's not just on the mayoral level i think that builds you know some set of like a political infrastructure but it's really on the more local city council level where the uh, ctu has been incredibly effective and i think that's another model for the country where you've seen other unions take up that mantle of fighting um, these political fights as a way to secure victories outside of just the contract bargaining which is you know what you traditionally have seen as the areas where unions have impact you know and uh by the way you mentioned this is a tangent before i won't forget the charter school thing i'll come back to it but four aldermen who took the stage in the auditorium theater uh for that uh, momentous uh, rousing rally uh, where karen lewis addressed the uh, throngs and they uh she led the the teachers in a march uh, throughout the loop. I remember Spazzato, Nick, Nick Spazzato was there, who you once sat on the show with. Uh, I remember Bob Fioretti, former alderman of the second ward was there. And I remember Scotty Wagasback, uh, alderman of the 32nd ward was there. Who was the fourth? Do you remember? And it's, it, those were the, those were the, well, I didn't remember Spasato. I remembered uh, Fioretti and uh, Wagasback, but I'm not sure exactly who the fourth was, but I do remember there were, there were four there. But oh yeah. We'll, was, uh, yeah. It, we'll find it. Uh, say what you will about Nick Spasato and uh, Nick was very pro teachers back in 2012. I gave him a lot of love for that. Uh, Nick and I don't see eye to eye on anything. I will say he, one, <laughs> but we see eye to eye on that. Go ahead. Yeah. I will say I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was Joe Moreno, but I do remember. No, that it was that definitely was, not Proco. Are you, you know, kidding? Such an encapsulation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but here's the thing: 
he went on Fox News and said famously that we should blow up the Chicago public schools. You know, he was one. Of, he said he was the you know new face of progressivism in the city. The former first ward alderman, now you know, completely disgraced, corrupt. Um, but yeah, he went on Fox News and said we should blow up the the, the Chicago public school system. That it was complete. That it was corrupt, um, and was speaking out against the teachers. But he felt so much pressure um, that he was on the picket line eventually uh, with the teachers oh, because wow. of he realized how much support he was losing by his anti-teacher sentiment. So I think that's a good example of how the political winds have changed through the CTU's um, impact. I do not remember that, and I. I challenge you to prove uh, show me that you talk about two i remember uh proko now we're in a tangent within a tangent within a tangent proko joe i teased him about this mercilessly uh he went on the tv you're right and he said i love teachers i'm paraphrasing but i don't like the teachers union and i was a bit like who do you think is in the teachers union you know what i'm saying so that was a line that like rom's people wrote i love teachers i love giving apples but i hate unions uh, and that was her way they try to discredit Karen Lewis, but maybe you're right. I just, and, uh, he later had a change of heart. Who knows? Uh, well, there's a, there's a, uh, there's an infamous photo of me, Micah Utrecht and Joe Moreno all together at a CTU protest. I will find <laughs> it and, and show it to you. I think that one was against the school closings, but oh, we're, okay. we're all hanging out together. All right. That, wow. So, um, but yeah, his, but his, his, his tune uh, changed quite a bit after the backlash too. And in these times I actually ran a piece uh, calling out Joe Moreno for his anti-teacher union rhetoric around that uh, particular issue. I got to see that's two millennials and a nineties hipster uh, at a rally. Uh, Joe Moreno's claim to fame uh, in when he got to the city council is that um, he liked nineties rock and roll. And, you know, that was like really far out for Chicago. Whoa, you know, what's the name of that group? I'm really showing my ignorance here, Miles. Kurt Cobain's group. What's it called? Nirvana. Yes, he loved Nirvana, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the charter schools. You raise a very good point. I remember in 2012 teacher strike, uh, the uh, charter school operators uh, staged their own mini little protests or demonstrated press conference in downtown Chicago. And they said, our schools are open. Because, you know, we're dedicated to teaching. Uh, and I'm like, man, that is such a punky move. To, uh, you know what I mean, uh, Miles? To pretend as though all your teachers in your school are in line with you against the teachers union. That was just your way of showing, of saying, we control our teachers. We don't listen to our teachers. They stand in line. I really thought it was a contemptuous move that showed a lot of disdain for their uh, teaching force. Uh, this is back in 2012. And you're absolutely correct. I'm going to give, if it was Jesse Sharkey's uh, decision, let's give him credit anyway, the, to go out and organize those charter schools uh, totally changes things politically. You know, charter schools aren't as valuable to politicians like Kenny G and Bruce Rauner if they're organizing a union. Do you follow what I'm saying? Charter schools, like Rauner kicked money into a, the Nobles charter school. They named it after him. Can you imagine being a kid has to wear the, a T-shirt that says Rauner? God, damn, that's rough. But uh, politically speaking, charters, once they're organized, they shift. Do you follow what I'm saying in terms of the national discourse uh, on where we should go with education? And they move away from the neoliberal uh, waiting for Superman model where there's the teachers are powerless and they move into a model where teachers have a say uh, in how the schools are run. It's a, it's a big shift. 
Yeah. And I think that that's what you're seeing now in terms of those teachers are bargaining their contracts. And in some cases, they're winning bigger concessions for management than even CPS has. And since they're covered by the same union, um, then CTU can turn to CPS and say, hey, you know, these charters have you know, these benefits in their contract, this is what we demand in ours. And so, you know, it becomes more opportunities for, um, especially now with um, the bargaining rights expanded, um, we'll see the next time, you know, contract comes up for negotiation, it's going to be a hard fought fight because now the union legally has way more um, CTU does that they can bargain over and they're going to want, you know, a lot of the benefits that, um, these charters have that they don't have that said, I mean, CPS has all kinds of benefits that a lot of the charters, you know, didn't have, especially for, you know, pay for, um, starting teachers, all kinds of things. So, you know, I think it helps to raise the, um, the, the base level for, um, for all teachers across the board and can really affect other types of uh, classroom supports. And that's, I mean, that's just like the, the, the way forward, I think, in terms of building a stronger union movement, because we know, you know, unions are getting attacked the, uh, across the board. There's way more interest in unions than ever. Um, but teachers are now being attacked. I mean, that's what's really uh, been one of the most troubling things of this past year is how we've seen, um, so much sentiment turn against teachers, both with um, this COVID safety question, you know, people saying, screw the teachers, go back to the classroom. And then all the CRT stuff of saying, you know, you can't teach my kids this certain information about our country's history. Um, well, that's one area where CTU has really led the way because they've won. I mean, plenty of teachers will say that the um, current agreement doesn't go far enough in terms of uh, teacher safety, but it's certainly way farther than Mayor Lightfoot or CPS were willing to go initially, you know, or would have gone without there being a fight over it. I mean, there shouldn't have even had to have been a negotiation over, you know, safety in the classroom. That seems like a basic given during a global pandemic. But um, there did have to be these really high stakes negotiations uh, and the teachers did win pretty historic um uh, victories in terms of teacher safety. And then when it comes to teaching in the classroom, I mean, this isn't directly CTU, but look at, you know, after the John Burge torture case, there was a, a part of the settlement is that that is being taught in CPS classrooms, this history of police abuse uh, in by the uh, Chicago Police Department. And it's part of this broader um, current of uh, white supremacy in American history. And, you know, that's the same thing that uh, par- certain parents, certainly, you know, right-wing Republicans are fighting to keep out of the classroom. Well, uh, racial justice has been an issue that the CTU has long foregrounded in all of its fights, you know, and, and, and put forward. And I think that that has set them apart, is, is not running away from that fight and saying, no, we need to um, put forward uh, racial justice as part of our, in our curriculum if we're really going to deal with the um, dark history of racism, both in the country and in the city. So, I mean, that's one, I, I've been really troubled by a lot of the anti-teacher stuff we've seen nationally, um, but but here in Chicago, I think that that's one place where uh, the, the union has done a good job of um, pushing back against that narrative. Well, I gotta say that, um, uh, 
I, I, I too share uh, your discomfort uh, at the, some of the rhetoric that emerged uh, in since the latest outbreak and how it was so anti-teacher. And it, it, we talked about it so much in the show about how uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot was drinking that um, centrist Kool-Aid that uh, Virginia gubernatorial uh, Republican wins Kool-Aid that the centrists have been uh, sipping. And that it, and uh, the issue, I guess, if it boils down to, Miles, the code word that they put out for it, the Republicans, and they're going to use it against Pritzker, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, get ready for it. We'll get into uh, Richard Irvin in a little bit. Uh, parents' rights. And so parents' rights is like the overriding uh, headline that that sends out a message and the message has been uh since the virginia gubernatorial election miles we're not going to teach um controversial subjects touchy subjects that deal with race in our country we're not going to teach that in social studies so good luck discussing the civil war uh uh, and um we're not closing the schools and eventually, I think, like, there's a, a lawsuit right now. I don't know if you, uh, we haven't really talked about it a lot on the show. There's a lawsuit in Illinois uh, that's attempting uh, to uh, strip the state of the power to mandate masks in public schools. So, uh, and that's being defined in terms of parental rights. You follow me? Like, well, the right parents have a say. You can't t- dictate to parents how their kids are taught, which is such a curious assertion of liberty. Uh, the assertions of liberty by the right always baffle me. They're very selective about who gets liberty. And so what's your sense of, like, when you hear the phrase parental rights and you know the code word that they're shifting, uh, that they're sending out, what's your sense of where the larger public is, are they paying attention to this? Are they picking up on it? Do you think it's a potent uh, weapon or do you think uh, centrist Democrats are panicking uh, and uh, moving right out of fear of losing uh, in November? I would definitely go with that second uh, description of uh, the state of affairs. I think that, you know, if there's one thing that centrist Democrats are known for, it's running scared, you know, when there's any type of a political battle um, in front of them. That's it was a it's a clever move by the right to uh, pose parents against teachers. Um, And that's. I think an extension of what we were talking about earlier of what kind of the charter uh, debate tried to do, you know, in that case, it was saying that these uh, unions are trying to, you know, dictate how to teach your kids and you want to have more, you want to have more choice. So you want to send your kid to the best school. You want to, you know, pick how their education is, um, basically go to the lowest common denominator in terms of, you know, pay and support for the teachers so that you can get your kid the best education. I think that that's, you know, extension of that is this question of parental rights. What it makes me think of is like men's rights, you know, it's like, you know, it, it, it just doesn't really, it's like, yeah, men should have rights. But when you say that it's really, you know, code word for something else. And, um, when it comes to men's rights, it's code word for, you know, taking away women's rights, basically. And when it comes to parental rights, that means taking away teachers' rights. It's like the kids kids learn best when um, they're, uh, they have good resources in the classroom, when their teachers are, you know, not totally stressed, when they have lower class sizes, when teachers are, you know, 
well-resourced themselves when they're better paid. I mean, all studies show that. So um, there's not an inherent conflict between um, schools being safe places for kids to learn and parents having, you know, a better time. That's a, this is, this pandemic is, you know, on like, it's like created so much stress on the population as a whole and parents, especially. Um, and the recent work action by the CTU was a good indicator of that because, you know, the negotiations went late into the night and parents didn't know if their kids were going to be in school the next day or not, if they had to find, you know, childcare, that's a terrible situation for parents to be in and anybody would feel for them. And in that way, you know, you can understand that, but, it's a global pandemic. I mean, this, it's not, and it's not like the teachers caused that. So, you know, who are you really going to blame? Is it the people in charge that should be, you know, providing some sense of leadership? I, i.e. in that situation, the school system, um, or is it the teachers themselves, you know, who just want to be safe and keep their families safe? Now, my hope is of course, is that the, you know, pandemic is waning and that the, some of these, arguments will not be as uh, current, you know, in the next, in, in upcoming election cycles, if there's, you know, if the schools are able to open back up um, completely and COVID mitigation is, you know, taken care of now, it looks like by the end of this month, um, there will likely be vaccines available for kids six months through five years old. I think that'll help to change a lot of this dynamic and get us out of this horrible situation. Uh, but in the meantime, you're right, it's being used as a political wedge in order to um, attack uh, teachers and therefore Democrats, yeah. you know, and Democrats, I don't think should be the party of like closing things down. That's kind of the worst outcome, right, is the uh, Democrats fight for these protections and then Republicans win by fighting against them and they open everything back up as the pandemic is waning and they say, hey, we, you know, protected all your freedoms. So, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a scary thing to like set yourself up for, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't fight for safety while there's still a, you know, raging pandemic going on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a difficult situation. It is. And by the way, you're absolutely you hit it on the head. That's the game that's going to be played. You're absolutely correct. Uh, as COVID wanes, things open up. If the Republicans take over, they really open up. They go, yeah, we did it, man. <laughs> that's how it goes. Uh, politics in America. That's the game that's played. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. We I briefly talked to you about this yesterday. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics these days. Joe Rogan, Spotify, and Neil Young. And the battle they're in, uh, and of course, uh, jo Joe Rogan signed a hundred million dollar deal to go on Spotify. Yes, I'm jealous. Uh, and um, do his podcast. And uh, Joe Rogan, everybody knows, uh, brings on people. Joe Rogan himself uh, has not been vaccinated, doesn't believe in a vaccine. Uh, and uh, he brings on people who uh, agree with him and they've been putting out all kinds of interesting, I got interesting in quotes, information about the vaccines and uh, how you don't need one and how you're better off without one and how they may be dangerous, et cetera. And finally, Neil Young, the great rock and roller from the 70s and the 60s, said he had enough and he asked uh, Spotify to take him down. Uh, you either choose me or Rogan. <laughs> and duh, they chose Rogan. They just gave him $100 million, Neil. You know they're not going to. Uh, choose you. Uh, I know you got a lot of thoughts on this, uh, Miles, and uh, what this says about where we're at in political discourse, free speech, 
the whole notion, and I have this in quotes, of cancel culture and how it's used as a political weapon. So take it away and give us your thoughts. In many ways, for one thing, I think you're next, Ben. That 100 milli is coming your way from, from Spotify. Uh, you're the, you're next up. Oh, God bless you, man. Uh, my strong belief. I will definitely cut you in for a million if that happens, all right? You've been such a good friend of this show. <laughs> okay, I'll hold you to it. Um, <laughs> I will, um, you know, uh, I'll say I think that Joe Rogan is a numbskull, and I think, you know, in so many ways he is uh you know taking he he's taking away more than he's bringing to debates over questions of politics science medicine um what have you uh but i also think he would admit that maybe not that he's you know uh a, a net bad when it comes to uh, those questions but that he's kind of moronic i mean he, he says himself that he's you know a former MMA guy that he, you know, was on the host of fear factor. He was on news radio. He's like, he's not an expert in any of this stuff. Um, and because of that, he's, you know, a, uh, uh, he's a amenable interview interviewer. He's able to bring on guests and like have interesting conversations with them, um, by just asking them questions and giving them a platform and letting them, uh, talk and spew whatever it is they're going to spew. Um, and oftentimes he has fellow idiots on the show, but <laughs> those are people that are pretending to be experts, you know, and claim to be and cite all kinds of, and, you know, he poses as that too, a little bit because he'll like say, Oh, I was reading the other day and have his producer like pull up some weird random news story from some unknown website, you know, citing some claims or something. But like, here's my main takeaway is that we live in a society right now where we have a public health infrastructure um, and uh, a series of institutions that are meant to give us guidance on how to you know, live our lives through this pandemic. And time after time, those um, networks of uh, public health infrastructure have failed to give us proper um, advice, or they've changed uh, politically, you know, in, 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 in tune with how politics have changed. Um, at first, we shouldn't have worn masks. And then, you know, we should. The question of, you know, the uh, how long you quarantine changed overnight from 10 days to five days without really citing science. Like these are things that are enough to confuse anybody. And that's, I think, a much bigger issue in our society than having a numbskull podcast host. I know he has a massive audience and people can choose not to listen to him. But once we start calling for private companies to boycott voices, I think anybody kind of on the left or progressives who believe in not only free speech, but free exchange of ideas should be really worried because that's that sets a precedent that is really dangerous. And I think that it, it, it's similar to when we look at what's happening with um, January 6th. I mean, the and the way that the government is using the um, the riot that happened that was incited by political leaders to um, crush dissent and pass anti-protest laws that we know will disproportionately um, criminalize left-wing activists and organizers um, rather than going after the actual political 
uh, representatives who helped to incite the riot. Um, the same thing happening here where we're seeing, you know, people go after uh, Joe Rogan. I mean, I'm not trying to defend Joe Rogan, but I'll say like Neil Young can take his music off. I think that's a fine act. People can boycott it. But what if we uh, if we want to boycott Spotify, I think the reason people should be upset at Spotify is the fact it doesn't pay artists. You know, it pays Joe Rogan a hundred million dollars to come on. But, you know, how much was Neil Young making off of his albums being streamed? Probably not much, which is why it's not a huge hit for him to get off. And now you're seeing this cascade of other artists doing the same thing. If we want to see changes in Spotify, I think it should be how the music industry uh, is impacted by these streaming services that um, take so much from artists without um, giving anything back in terms of revenue. Uh, that's the real issue here. I think it comes, I mean, it's capitalism is the thing, you know, like they're making massive amounts of money off of this and people are, uh, you know, buying into it. Cause that's like seemingly their only, their only choice in order to access music these days. Hopefully that will dynamic will change as a result of, uh, this. So I don't think it's all bad that people are, um, you know, taking concerted action against uh, Spotify right now. But I think the particular focus just on Joe Rogan um, and calling for him to be canceled or something is not necessarily going to help to improve um, public health in this country. Like, I don't think that if you take Joe Rogan off the air, that will end vaccine disinformation, that it will stop the, you know, some like majority of Republicans who don't trust the vaccine or the government's advice, that's not going to change because of Joe Rogan. It's a whole, there's a whole constellation of right-wing voices um, and, and some on the left too, you know, not like I wouldn't call them actually the left, but people would say that they're, you know, progressive anti-vaxxers like that stuff is out there and it's going to take a lot more than taking one podcast host off the air to, uh, to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great riff. I'm glad you went on it. And I will say this about Rogan. Uh, here's my shameless attempt to get him to have, invite me as a guest on his show. Uh, I, You know, he had Bernie on. And I don't know if you saw that one. He gave Bernie an opportunity to do his Bernie thing. To, and Bernie took it. Bernie Sanders, that is. Uh, and this was about 2019, I want to say, Miles. Uh, I've lost track of time with the pandemic, but it was definitely before uh, the the Democratic voters had settled on Joe Biden as their nominee. So it was a moment where Joe, where being on the um, Joe Rogan show really helped Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders was proud of that. You know what I'm saying? He he tweeted it out, and immediately there was a backlash. This is politics in America today. So on one hand. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, what do you call them, lefties, liberals, progressives, uh, outraged that uh, Bernie Sanders would go on the Joe Rogan show. And so they blasted Bernie Sanders for going on the Joe Rogan show. And then <laughs> uh, some of Joe Rogan's uh, fans, I guess, got mad at him for giving a platform to a lefty like Bernie Sanders. So Joe Rogan backed off. I don't know if you saw this. He goes, hey, I didn't endorse him. I just had him as a guest on my show. I may vote for Donald Trump. And then he does what he always does when he gets in trouble. He goes, I'm just a fucking idiot. What do I know? Don't listen to me. Uh, and then you pointed out that Jon Stewart did the same thing. So without the fucking idiot part. But um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's like I do believe the left should engage with Joe Rogan. 
I personally believe, like, I think that Bernie took his message to people who may not have heard it before. The problem is, is that Joe Rogan doesn't really care about Bernie's central message. So he's not going to have Bernie Sanders types on his show all the time. You know what I'm saying? What really like gets Joe Rogan going is not uh, economic inequality and the need to have a, a stronger safety net, which is the core of Bernie Sanders message in my humble opinion. So it's kind of problematic. Do you follow what I'm saying? When you have to, when you're like looking for Joe Rogan. Yeah. To be an ally, I but. think exactly. I think Joe Rogan is not, he's never going to be that he's, he's provides platforms for people to say what they're going to say already, you know? And so Jordan Peterson goes on and says some idiotic nonsense about race science and Rogan kind of, you know, agrees with him or at least like, you know, amps them up around it. But then he has, you know, Cornell West on and calls him brilliant and gives Cornell West, you know, a, a, a platform to reach his, you know, millions of listeners and say some really um, righteous words about, you know, fighting for justice in our society. Um, there's also just, it's hard because there's this equivalency question, right? I mean, Bill Maher is out here questioning, you know, vaccine science on his show with Barry Weiss and people are not calling for Bill Maher to be taken off the air. Um, and there's just something I think particularly irksome about Joe Rogan that gets under people's skin. Um, but you're right to point out the, um, the John Stewart comparison, because I think that that's, you know, the same question is like, are, if we're going to have people in our, you know, news networks and in our, you know, social media feeds and podcasts feeds that are able to like occupy these multiple roles as comedians, entertainers, and where we get our news from in a way like we have to be able to separate some of that ourselves because those people in those positions are always going to be able to say, Hey, don't take me too seriously. Um, I'm just, you know, uh, providing a, you know, entertainment or, or, or what have you. And the problem goes back to the crisis in media. You know, we don't have like well-funded public media in this country. We don't have the, uh, all of our media is basically corporate funded and corporate money wants to protect the interests of the wealthy. And therefore you have like right-leaning media across the spectrum. And it's like impossible to find independent media sources that are well-resourced enough to reach people um, that actually provide the news that they want. And instead you get this infotainment kind of, uh, products that seemingly, you know, scratch that itch, but then you run the risk of having people like Rogan who aren't really, as you said, concerned about the basic questions of, uh, what makes up a dignified life in the 21st century and instead want to spin conspiracy webs the same way his character on news radio used to do back in the nineties, you know, like that's the guy that Joe Rogan is. He's more interested in questioning, um, you know, secret government plots, which while there might be some threads of truth there, like that's not really dealing with the fact that, you know, there is massive wealth and income equality in this country and that, you know, there's no 
universal healthcare system and that public education is being attacked. I mean, those are more critical issues, I think. But yeah, unfortunately, there's not the type of resources available in our country to fund the type of news media networks we would need to deal with those. And instead, we're stuck with a Rogan dominated media sector. So I think that it has to deal with like, there's more structural issues at work here and just fighting about Joe Rogan plays into that. And it gives the right a chance to, you know, like beat their chests a little bit because they're like, see, they just want to cancel everybody, yeah. you know, while they're also the same people. I don't want to get too into it, but you know, the same people are cheering on Whoopi Goldberg getting, you know, suspended from the view uh, on the right. It's like their whole, the, the, the right's whole view on canceling and, you know, free speech is so confused right now that, um, you know, I don't think we should, fall into any of their terms. oh absolutely they're the biggest hypocrites you guys are the biggest cancel cultures in the world is coming from the right they won't even let a teacher teach the civil war they're like dict- they talk about joe rogan being canceled what about all the teachers uh, you can't teach slavery because it'll offend a little white kid and they always make fun yeah, whenever like a trans person takes exception to a david Chappelle routine oh snowflake shut up laugh at the joke but a little white kid is like, oh, my God, they're calling me a racist. Oh, poor baby. Here, have a lollipop. You're right, man. It, <laughs> they're the biggest hypocrites. You can't. Well, you cannot believe anything that comes out of the mouth of a Republican or a right winger these days. Miles, this is me speaking, not Miles. You can't believe it because it's just all BS that they throw out there to win an argument. To win it, It's a tactical thing. It's not they're not arguing from the heart. Even the libertarians, man, they they're like hiding under a table when it comes to abortion rights. You know what I'm saying? But, oh, my God, talk about Second Amendment. They got, that's where they really f- feel their, you know, they really feel it on that one. So I, I'm with you 100%, the inconsistency. Are right, we going to close with this one. I'm going to really put you in the hot seat. I didn't tell you I was going to do this to you. Um, we had this conversation yesterday. It was a great debate, in my humble opinion. Uh, Monroe Anderson, myself, and Sergio Mims. And I just read this uh, article about a guy uh, in the New Yorker about a guy that I've always respected. I get a lot of grief from uh, my friends of the far left persuasion for uh, respecting him. His, his name is Adolph Reed, and uh, he's a professor. Uh, he used to be at Northwestern many years ago. I, I've lost track of where he is now. I think he's at. Don't quote me in this. I think he's at Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, whatever. Doesn't matter where he is. Uh, and uh, he argues that uh, class is more of a significant factor. Uh, in the politics of inequity than race and that uh, we do a disservice. The Democrats do a disservice. Academics do a disservice to put such a heavy emphasis on race. Uh, and I, I read him and respect him a lot. I know he's gotten in trouble with a lot of uh, younger leftists uh, on this front. He's a black man himself, by the way. And um, so I, I read this article about him profiling him. I go, all right, Monroe and Sergio, we're going to discuss this Adolf Reed and his race overplayed. And then just as well, we're about ready to do it. Miles, word breaks about Brian Flores' lawsuit against the NFL. And I just said, you know what? I love you, Adolf Reed, but <laughs> I think race is still a factor. And Brian Flores, of course, uh, is a former coach of the Miami Dolphins. This is an obsessive topic of mine. We'll be discussing it at length at a bonus segment coming up uh, tomorrow. So we haven't lost this topic about how uh, uh, blacks are underrepresented as coaches in the NFL. And the attitude seems to be, though no white person will admit it, uh, we love black people play, but we don't want to give them responsibility because we don't trust them as coaches. 
so what's your take on the Adolf uh, Reed debate and the whole notion of where race and class uh, fall into the discussion of inequities in this country? I think it's often uh, the, the question of race versus class is a running current in you know our national debate, certainly on the left uh, when it comes to questions of inequities. Um, but I think in many ways it's a you know false dichotomy in that there's no way to separate those two elements. I mean, the race has been used as a cudgel to separate you know uh, different people uh, as a tool by the people that hold power and wealth in our society um, since the founding of our country. And that has been a way to keep people separated along racial lines um, in order to keep the class uh, separation where it's at. And that's, I mean, if you read like the Kambahi River Collective, um, which is, you know, where they first kind of these questions of identity politics first uh, uh, were really articulated, um, series of black feminist women um, writing about racial injustice and Barbara Fields, who's, you know, uh, somebody who certainly is friends with um, Adolph Reed. They talk eloquently about how race and class are, um, are intertwined, but too often in our national politics, um, we focus, I think, on questions of racial disparities without talking about the, um, the economic arrangements at play. And I think that's because when you start to talk about those, that starts to threaten the, the power balance we have in our society. And that's not, people don't want to touch that. You know, they'd rather focus on things around, you know, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi and these, you know, thinkers who talk about, um, solutions to racism through people just changing their behavior rather than us actually changing um, economic arrangements in our country. And, you know, look at what people were demanding. Look at the um, reconstruction. I mean, that was probably the moment when there was most power given um, to, or at least, you know, power won by people of color in this country from being completely um, relegated to the margins of our society. And, it had to do with not just political power, but economic power, you know, that was that, that, that was gained by um, people of color in this country. And it was fought aggressively, not just by white people on the whole, but specifically, um, and at least mo- most aggressively by um, wealthy landowners and those who saw their property rights being threatened, um, who saw that their, you know, their ability to affect the political process to protect their rights to, you know, whether it, whether it was energy sources or, you know, factories or what have you. Um, that's, you know, every time there's advancements, of, you know, there's more economic uh, uh, equality gained in this country among different races, there's a backlash. And the response to that often is a way to, you know, again, bring this question of race as like a cultural question rather than uh you know, beyond culture to, um, to economic matters as well. And, you know, the Brian Flores thing is a good example of that. I mean, this is somebody who lost their job, I mean, because of racism and, uh, and institutional racism within the institution of the NFL and specifically in his, uh, lawsuit, if you read it, he cites that this is being, you know, the NFL is basically like a plantation 
you know, with these 32 owner, all white owners of these teams looking down on the field at these, you know, what is it like 70% black players watching them brawl on the, the gridiron and uh, they're all extracting massive amounts of profit out of them um, while protecting their own um, station in life as these incredibly wealthy uh, owners and the coaches are similarly almost all white. And then when they do hire coaches of color, like Brian Flores at the dolphins, they tell them to tank, you know, to lose games on purpose. That was one of his major complaints. And then, it, then they use them to tank so that they can fire them and then hire white coaches and their replace as the replacement. In his case, he did the opposite. He won, you know, and Miami dolphins had a good season the past couple of years, which was against the uh, commands of his, of the ownership and they fired him because of that because they didn't get a good enough draft pick because the team was winning i mean that just speaks i think again to the fact that these these questions and then so he faces not only you know racism from the culture of the nfl which is certainly the case but the same way you know colin kaepernick lost his job and lost that source of income he then you know brian flores did too and so there is an economic um, component uh, to it as well. So I, it's, it, I just think you cannot separate the questions Absolutely. of um, class and, and race. I, uh, yeah, that's a, that was another great riff, Miles. Uh, and that particularly, I urge everybody, I know this is, sounds weird, read the lawsuit. And I've never seen a lawsuit quite like this because um, it's really, it's like in some ways it's like a political treatise. It's some like, in some ways it's like a, a column, a rant, uh, in some ways it's a plea from the heart. And, uh, and then it, it has like these little helpful picture arrays, uh, which I've never seen in a lawsuit. So to prove the point, uh, that miles is getting at all the owners are white. They have the, all the owners headshots of all the owners in the lawsuit just to prove, you know what I mean? Oh, so you can't escape this. And then they have all the headshots of the head coaches. Uh, and right now there's only uh, one black man, uh, head coach in the NFL from the uh, uh, Tomlin of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. And so you see his picture among uh, this array of white faces. Uh, I, I, it's a really uh, compelling, in my humble opinion, you know, you get that legal gobbledygook, uh, you know, the lawyers throw in there cause it is a lawsuit. Uh, but then when you get to the narrative, uh, pretty powerful stuff. And that point you made miles, I'm, th I'm thinking, so they hired him. They hired a black man, followed me in this to be the coach of a team that was really bad. And according to him, his allegation is that they said, lose games on purpose. And they will give you a bonus. We'll give you more money if your team loses so that the low, the worst record gets the highest draft choice. We'll get a good draft choice. And then you're right, Miles. I'm thinking if we do a study, like black coaches, they get, is there a, uh, any like trail that you could see like a pattern here where their teams do really bad and then they get a high draft choice and then they get fired. You get what I'm saying? It's like, and then lo and behold, I don't know if you saw this, but the next day, uh, Jackson, former coach of Cleveland Browns came out with an allegation that they try to, pay him to tank to I'm like I wonder if this is man this is an insidious form of mind fuckery if you get what I'm saying you know what I mean Miles and um, I, I, that's why I'm so uh, I'm so into this case because it really is very revealing 
uh, about relations, racial relations in our country right now. And like the NFL, how they pledge allegiance to the notion that they're open-minded and they believe in tolerance. And, uh, you know, they learned their lesson from uh, black lives matter and the George Floyd uh, murder. You know what I'm saying? And these games are still going on. So, all right, Miles, before we let you go, well, I think uh, that there's no, go ahead. Well, I think that it just speaks to, you know, one last thing is that, you know, white supremacy is, uh, uh, a, you know, a deep um, uh, uh, taint on our entire society. And like our politics need to confront that. And whether it's in sports, whether it's in our culture, whether it's, you know, in our actual electoral politics realm, that's something that we need to be aware of. And any of these these cases, I think, that bring up um, how the system is set up to disadvantage uh people of color and specifically black people i think that's uh, critical to shining a light on how you know we we have a long way to go to to correct our, our racial ills in this society and like you can't you know getting to that class race question like you you, you can't solve questions of class uh inequities without dealing with this question of deep racism um that, that exists in both our culture and our uh and our society and 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 that's you know what what this helps to bring light to i mean people might not care because it's football or something but you know i think we need to, to take a hard look at, at this question and you know that's the i think that's the only way to have, build an actual like majoritarian uh, left-wing working-class-led politics in this country is to have it be not just multiracial, but have it actually confront uh, racial injustice and in our society. And whether that's you know police violence or whether that's you know employment discrimination, I think that those are critical issues that need to be uh, dealt with before we have any chance, you know, of, of really changing the way things work in our country. All right, uh, Miles, before I let you go, uh, promote what's in, in these times. Always good articles, enlightening articles. And in these times, uh, what you got to uh, promote for us? Sure. Well, the article is going to go up today is on um, something we didn't touch on, but a really critical issue is that, you know, we've got a Supreme Court opening with uh, Stephen Breyer retiring. And there's a big push among some Democrats to appoint uh, a, a nominee, including Jim Clyburn, who of course was critical in getting representative Jim Clyburn from South Carolina was critical in Biden winning the um, democratic primary. He's really pushing a management side lawyer to be the next, to be the nominee. Um, so we have a piece coming out um, talking about why that would be a mistake basically. And why this is an opportunity for Biden to choose a labor friendly justice, something that's been missing on the Supreme Court for a long time and really makes a strong case that for, you know, many, many decades now, the Supreme Court has been an anti-worker institution in this country. And that this is, you know, obviously the Supreme Court is an anti-democratic institution. I think it is uh, in many ways, you know, uh, outdated and you know, needs to be uh, done away with or at least radically changed. But in the meantime, you know, a chance to choose a Supreme Court justice is an incredible opportunity for a president. And Biden has claimed to be the most pro-labor president ever. Uh, he, it's uh, really, I think, his duty to appoint uh, or at least nominate some somebody who will represent workers' rights on the court. So that's a piece by uh, Marcy, Mar Marcy uh, Marvit, and that will be up 
uh, later today on Thursday. So people should definitely check that out. We also have a piece that's really interesting um, that was the cover story from our last issue. Um, that's a conversation between five Black Lives Matter organizers on kind of where the movement is and where it's going forward now. It's kind of a retrospective on, you know, a year after, a uh, year and change after the George Floyd protests, like, you know, and then calls to defund the police, where um, where is uh, the movement for Black Lives headed? Um, and I think it's really um, revealing, especially since so much national media has taken their eyes off of um, these movements for racial justice. I think it's really an, uh, an important read. So um, I think it's called What's Next for the Defund Movement. Um, and it's a really great roundtable on the In These Times site. You can read those on InTheseTimes.com. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Miles. Miles Kampflassen, uh, editor in these times and a writer. So I assume you edited at least one of those, uh, if not both. And uh, so good stuff. And always a great guest on the show. Appreciate you coming on, Miles. Miles Kampflassen, the pride and joy at Whitney Young High School. And uh, he was a radical back in the day at Whitney Young. He was a troublemaker, Miles was. I like to point that out. Uh, and uh, anyway, thank you very much, Miles. Uh, and also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Miles uh, and Jesse Sharkey will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs>